We're so glad that you are checking out this sermon from New Beginnings. Our vision as a church is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this through gathering in worship, growing through community, giving to the kingdom, and going on mission. We know that one of the greatest blessings of the church is getting to pursue this vision that God has given us together. My hope is that we would get the opportunity to connect with you in person and get you plugged into the life of our church. Also, if you have been blessed by the ministries of New Beginnings, we ask that you would consider supporting us financially. You can do so by clicking on the giving tab of our website, nvbctx.org. I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged by the scripture today. I love this weekend. This weekend uh, is the day, or this weekend was the time where all the uh, football teams that have made it to the state finals uh, had the opportunity to play uh, to get their school, their city, their community a state champion. Some were playing for their, I know Carthage for their seventh state champion. Other communities were playing for their very first. And this is one of the things that makes uh, Texas high school football what it is. I mean, there's no other place uh, in the nation like it. And uh, communities shutting down. I know some little towns, if you ever wanted to rob the community, when they make state game, just go there. Nobody's there, all right? And so because it's a big deal. It's a big deal for your team to be able to go and compete. And then if your team wins, you get to do something that very few cities get to do. You get to put the sign up on the outskirts of town that says, Welcome to whatever the name of the town is, home of the 2019 state high school football champions, right? And so, and what I love about this is that once a city and a community gets that opportunity, put the sign up, that sign remains forever. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I love traveling through uh, little towns all over Texas, especially when you get into West Texas, these small communities where it's like time has stood still, and there it is, an old beat-up sign. You can still see the letters on there, and you can kind of read it, and it's beat up, and it says, uh, home of the 1940-something, Right? <laughs> And they're still carrying this thing around. There's still guys talking about the day that they won the, the, the state uh, championship. Uh, it's kind of a big deal. Well, well, in the story of Christmas, here's what you find. You find this town that's being talked about. You find this city that's being mentioned in, in Christmas music. You see it in the story of Christmas in the New Testament. It's the, it's the town that we know of as Bethlehem. Bethlehem seems to be significant. The word Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. I don't know why. I'm sure there's a reason for it. But the house of bread, it's, it's located six miles south of Jerusalem uh, in the hill country of Judea. So I love it. It's got the hill country just like Texas. And so you have this little town in the middle of nowhere. And in Jesus' day, this would have been a little kind of community that has died in population, no significant industry, no booming economy, just a small, obscure, forgotten town with the exception. I don't know whether they did this or not, but they had a claim to fame. I don't know whether they had the sign on the outskirts of town, but here was what Bethlehem was known for. It was known as the city of, of David. City of David. I mean, there could have been a sign maybe on the outskirts of Bethlehem that would say something like this. This is welcome to Bethlehem, hometown, birthplace of King David, the most prominent king in all of Israel, maybe all of creation, the most prominent king. So welcome to the birthplace of King David. And then it would say this underneath it in quotations, the giant slayer, right? 
So I don't know whether they had the sign, but here's what I know. This was their claim to fame. But by the time you get to Jesus' day, this was just a little community, very low population, no booming economy, just kind of a shepherding community, forgotten, except for the fact they had this rich history of King David coming from there. Now, here's why I bring this up. When you get in the New Testament, it seems like at the very beginning of the story of Jesus, there's a lot of emphasis given to the fact that Mary and Joseph had to go to this little obscure village, this little obscure town, for Jesus to be born. It's like there's a lot of, of emphasis given to this nothing community whose claim to fame was hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, and there's all this attention of how they, 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 they arrived there and the circumstances that they were received and the reason they had to get there and all this emphasis given to Bethlehem. And then in addition to this, you, you see a lot of this focus given to the genealogy of Joseph and Mary kind of emphasizing their connection with David. And the question we need to ask is why so much emphasis? And here is the reason. The Old Testament, there is a promise. There was a promise that King David, the most prominent king of Israel, will have an offspring. And that offspring will also be born in Bethlehem. And, and this offspring will once again uh, sit on the throne of David. And he will reestablish a kingdom, but not the kingdom that David established, a greater kingdom. And the kingdom of this king, the descendant of David, born in Bethlehem, will be the king of kings. And his kingdom will have no end. And so the story of Christmas really is the story of the arrival of not a king, but the king. And so in the story, it's going to emphasize the genealogy. It's going to uh, uh, emphasize the birthplace being in Bethlehem because the writers want us to understand, hey, the, the greater king that we've been waiting for is here. And this is what we celebrate. So here's what I want us to do this morning. If we look at Jesus as the greater king, the, the greater giant slayer, I want us to go back in the Old Testament. I want us to see a glimpse of, of the story and the life of King David. And if David is a foreshadowing of the greater king, then I want us to kind of get a look at him and see what do we learn about Jesus from the story of King David. So grab your Bibles, if you would. Go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. Um, while you're turning there, let me kind of set up the story of what's happening in chapter 16 because most of our time is going to be spent in chapter uh, 17. So chapter 16, here is the backdrop of chapter 16. Uh, the, the nation of Israel has been established, but they don't have a king. And so they just have judges and a prophet, and, and they, they start wanting a king. They desire a king to come and lead them. And God says to the people, well, you don't need a king. I'll be your king. I'm going to govern you. I'm going to rule over you. And they said, no, 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 we appreciate that, but we want the king, a king like the other nations have, a warrior king who can represent us in battle. And so, God, we, we're thankful for you, but we, would you give us a king like the other nations? And so God was like, if you want a king like the other nations, I'll give you that. And so they start looking for a king. They find a king. His name is Saul. Saul was a man that just stood out in his stature, physically strong. He was a man's man. He was the warrior that they were looking for. And they selected um, uh, King Saul to be their king. The only problem is, is that Saul was the king the people wanted, but he was not the king the people needed. And so shortly into his reign, here's what you discover. You discover the wheels start falling off. Um, Saul is paralyzed and fear begins to make decisions based upon selfishness. And, and before you know it, here's what happens. Saul gets a visit from the prophet and says, the Lord has removed his anointing from you and you will be replaced as king. And that's kind of where the story begins to turn, although he remains king. But then God begins to say, I will select a king. 
And so he sends Samuel, this prophet, to the house of a man by the name of Jesse. Jesse is from Bethlehem. And he goes to the, the house of Jesse, and he begins to ask Jesse, hey, uh, uh, do you have sons? And, and I was told you had sons. And from this home, God's going to establish the next king of Israel. And so Jesse gets all of his sons together except one. And so Samuel begins to examine, and one by one, God tells Samuel, that's not the one, that's not the one, that's not the one. And he gets to all of the sons, and there's no king there. And he's like, what's going on here? And, and so he looks at Jesse and says, is this all of your sons? And then uh, Jesse, I don't know how David would have handled this. Jesse looks at him and says, well, yeah, I've got one more, but you wouldn't want him. Like, like how would you respond to that? Not real fam family friendly there. And so Jesse goes, he's, he's the shepherd boy. He's out tending the flock. So, so they send David a message for David to come. Now look what happens in verse number 11. It says, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there's, there's one that remains. He's the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. In other words, you wouldn't want him. He's just a shepherd boy. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. I love this. For we will not sit down until he comes here. Like, like, like Samuel just turned it on there for a moment. Like everything got awkward. We're going to stand and we're going to stand until David gets here. And so they're waiting and waiting and waiting. David shows up and he sent and brought him in. Now he was, this is David, was ruddy and he, he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. In other words, the description of David was not the description of a warrior. It was like a backstreet boy. And God says, this is the one. And he says, anoint him now. Look what happens in verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And listen to this. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So here's what you have. You have this new king that has been anointed in obscurity. Now, when you get in the rest of chapter 16, you say, what happens next? Nothing happens next. Like literally nothing. So you have this anticipation of now this is God's selected king who is now anointed in obscurity. The spirit of the Lord falls on him, but he doesn't move into the palace. He's not announced to the community. The story just goes on to say David just continues his life as normal. And eventually he's called by King Saul to come and play the harp for King Saul. So now you have this great anointed king that no one knows about in a nowhere little town. And he's nothing more than a shepherd heart boy. Like, this is not the climactic story you would think, right? But something happens in chapter 17. In chapter 17, there is a story that we're very familiar with. The story turns, and here's what happens in chapter 17. There's going to be the story about how this little shepherd boy faces this giant named Goliath. So in the middle of him playing his harp and keeping the, the sheep of his father anointed as king, nothing really significant happens. You're going to see this story of David and Goliath duking it out. And listen, by the way, how many of you are familiar with the story, David and Goliath? Raise your hand. Like Everybody should raise their hand, even if you heard it in a movie reference. This is kind of the most common, probably the most popular story. And here's what's happening for you in the room this morning. Some of you, you're like, you're a special person because this is the first time maybe in the history of ever that the, the Sunday before Christmas, uh, rather Rather than hearing the story of Jesus in the manger, you're going to hear the story of David killing Goliath. How, how special do you feel right now, right? And so somebody tomorrow is going to ask you, like, hey, what was church like yesterday? We, we had like a live nativity, and there was a baby, a real baby in the manger, and it was incredible. What did y'all do? We talked about David and Goliath. Like, your pastor's a loser is what you're going to hear. 
But you're going to see the significance before it's over with because here's what you find in the story of David and Goliath. You see this obscure king anointed in isolation. You're going to see this moment where he, he faces a giant, he slays the giant, and we get a glimpse of the type of king that David is going to be. But even more than that, we're going to see the type of king that King Jesus is going to be. So I want us to jump in to the story. First uh, Samuel chapter 17, verse 4. Uh, let me set up the background for you. Uh, the Philistine army are the sworn enemies of God. They, they're marching into the, the, the territory where God's people were. And as they're making their way in, the army of Israel comes and meets them. And they're, they're standing uh, on two mountains. The Philistines on one side, the, the, the Israelite army on the other. And there's this valley called the Valley of Elah in between. And there is this standoff for 40 days. A couple of reasons why there's a standoff is because, think about it, two, two armies are on the mountain. The, the, the Philistine army is trying to march in the land. But if you've got the high ground, you don't give the high ground up in battle, right? So neither team wants to leave, neither, neither, team, neither uh, uh, army wants to leave and come down to the valley. They're standing there saying, you come to me. And they're like, no, 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 you come to me. No, 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 you come to me. You were trying to invade our area. And now there's this standoff until the standoff is broken by a Philistine giant who enters the equation. Look what happens in verse number four. And there came, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels. His, this, this armor he was wearing was about 150 pounds, heavy. This is about a strong man. He had, he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekel of iron, and his shield bear went before him. Now listen to the description here. Don't miss this. This is a, a very detailed picture being described here. Goliath was over nine feet tall, about nine and a half feet tall. So think about a 10-foot basketball goal. He was, his head was six inches below that. We're talking about a, a real giant. He was strong, so he wasn't frail. He was carrying armor weighing over 150 pounds. By the way, the javelin had the spearhead on it. The spearhead alone weighed 15 pounds. So imagine the strength that would be needed to take that into battle and to be able to throw it with enough velocity for it to make uh, the, uh, damage uh, the enemy. So think about what's being painted here. It describes the armor being of this, this certain type of metal covering his body. And here's what's happening. The, there, there's great detail being given to the, the armor because the Philistines were known historically as having the most technology advancement in regards to military weaponry and protection. So you're talking about the most advanced army on the planet with the most maybe strongest, most mighty warrior you could ever imagine. The scripture is trying to paint the picture of Goliath as this machine of a man who was a wrecking ball to destroy anything that stood in his way. Look what happens now in verse 8. And he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. And if, he, if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Now, what was happening in this moment is this is what is known as representative warfare. 
representative warfare. Representative warfare is simply this. is rather than two armies coming and fighting, is that each army finds their mightiest warrior. Those mightiest warriors duke it out. And if the warrior of your army wins, then the other army is defeated and they become your servants. But if, if you win, then the, your enemy becomes uh, the, your, your servant. And so you have this where rather than the entire army fighting one another, you have one representative who represents the entire army against the other representative representing the other entire army, and the one that wins, wins it all. This is a, a massive truth that we'll come back to a little later in the story. Verse 10, And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So there is this utter defiance of the people of God, of the God of Israel But notice the disposition of the people of God as Goliath stepped out. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. Now, let's be honest, wouldn't you be? I mean, here you are, you're, you're, you're at an impasse, you're on one side of the valley, they're on the other side of the valley, and you, you don't know what's going to happen. You're like, we can't go down, are they going to come down? And then all of a sudden now, it's representative warfare, and we don't have anyone that can go toe-to-toe with, 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 with Goliath. We have no one. If we send someone, they will be defeated. Now think about this. Saul and his entire army, every time Goliath comes out to challenge them, what do they do? In fear, they run and hide. They run back to their tents, including the warrior king, King Saul. The one who is supposed to step up and represent God's people in these moments. He's hiding in his tent. They are struck with fear. They are paralyzed because they know they do not have what it takes to defeat their enemy. And this is where the story begins to turn. Shepherd boy, worship leader, is back home and he's tending the flock. Jesse, the dad, comes out and says, hey, David, your brothers are out at battle Hey, they're out fighting, which kind of a loose term. They really weren't out fighting. They were out hiding from the fight. Hey, I need you to go check out and see how things are going at the battle line. So I've got some bread. I've got some food. I've got some supplies. I want you to take these things to your brothers and see how things are going and come give me a report when you get back. And so here's what I laugh about this is, again, you've got this king that's been anointed. No one knows he's been anointed. And at this point, he plays a harp. He is... uh, like the sheep sitter for his dad, and now he's working for waiter. He's just delivering food, right? He's, this is not impressive, right? This is not the resume of a king. The picture is being painted that who is this guy? And so David shows up on the scene, and here's what we pick up in the story, verse 23. And he talked with them, behold, as he talked with them, so David is, is chatting it up with his brothers and the other military, the soldiers. And then behold, the champion of the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. This is the dun-dun-dun moment, right? This is the moment where David's sitting there, and it was a movie. You'd start hearing the, the music change, the shift, and all of a sudden, as they're talking, everybody goes to silence, and there he is. He's coming down, as he's done every single day for 40 days, to taunt Israel, to make fun of the army, to defy the God of Israel, and there they are. And David is now looking and seeing what's happening. He's getting caught up on the situation. And David heard him. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him, and, and, with, and, and they were afraid. And all the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? 
Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him, and in great riches he will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. I love this. Now think of what's going on here. So David's talking, and Goliath comes out, and then the people freak out. The soldiers are running for their tent, and as they're running, they're like, did you see this guy? And by the way, David, the, the, the king has said, if someone will go fight him and defeat him, man, he's going to give you his daughter. He's going to give you riches. And by the way, the IRS will never call your home again. You're going to be tax-free the rest of your life. <laughs> now, the alternative is, right? So they're trying to sell David on this, and David is intrigued. He goes, now, tell me again, and the story goes on. David goes, tell me again what's going to happen to the man that defeats this guy. Well, David's brothers overhear this, and they're furious. David's brother hear, hears David talk about going and defeating the, the giant, and they're like, who do you think you are? You're just the runt brother that no one really even pays attention to. Go back to tending the sheep and just let us men do the men thing, which David probably with sarcasm been like, yeah, hide in your tent. That's what men do. And so there's this moment where David's brothers, David's family rejects him as the deliverer. Verse 31. But the king hears, when the words that David spoke was heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. Verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. In other words, don't lose sleep over this, King Saul, I'm here. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, think about this for confidence, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. Like, that's what you're looking for. If you're going to go fight a big battle, you need the people around you saying, you can't do it, you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, right? And so Saul is telling him, you can't do it. And he says, he goes, you're, you're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from the days of his youth. King Saul looks at David and said, man, Goliath's got socks older than you. And the socks that he has are from the people that he killed. He took their socks from them. I mean, this is not going to go well for you. You're a kid. He's been fighting since he was a kid. You can't defeat him. Listen to David's response. I love the confidence here. He says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the army of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Now, I love this. This is a way for Saul to say, good luck with that. <laughs> Wish you well. Have fun dying. Like, this is what he's saying. But listen to what David's response was. Now, there was this time that a lion came after me. He was going to take the sheep, and I stood in the face of a lion, and I gained victory over the lion. And there was a bear, and the bear came. And I don't know how this happened, but I grabbed the, the bear's beard. And I didn't know bears had beards, but he grabbed it, and he wrestled the bear down. And then he says, listen, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because the same God that was with me then is with me now, and he's going to give me the victory. So he goes. Verse 42, we find what happens next in the story. He says, And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he, was dis he disdained him, for he was but a youth, uh, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beast." of the field. Goliath, it says, immediately when he saw David, he disdained him. In other words, he was like, is this a joke? Like, I'm a warrior, and you sent a Jonas brother out here to fight me. 
Like, no offense if you're a Jonas Brother fan, but come on, right? Like, is you, 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 you sent this kid, this little, this little boy band to come and fight me? Like, this has got to be some sort of joke. So here's what I'm going to do. I don't even need you. Hey, just come on. I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to feed your body, give the animals a little snack here, and it's going to be done. And then you can send me a real warrior, and we'll fight. I love what David does next. David is um, pretty good at trash talking as well. Verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defy. This day the Lord will deliver me or deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head, and I will give the body, the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword or the spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. I love this. I mean, David just like out trash talk Goliath. He's like, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God that created everything, and I'm coming to you in his power. And by the way, before the day's done, your head's going to be removed and your army are going to be feasted on by the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And I'm going to do this not so that I can get glory. I'm going to do this because I want the whole world to know that the God of Israel is the true and living God. And I want the assembly, the people of God, to know that you don't have to fear the sword and the spear because you've got the Lord. Which is good stuff. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and he came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine and David put his hand in his bag and he took out the stone and slung it and, and struck the Philistine in the forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on the face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and he stood over the Philistine and he took his sword and he drew it out of its sheath and he killed him and he cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Wow. Now you talk about overkill. Like he's dead, David. Not yet. And he severs his head. Now listen, it's not overkill. In a little bit, we're going to come back to that. You're going to see it's not overkill. There's a statement being made that we've got to see. But what a story. What a story. This, to this, this day, this is one of my favorite stories. I learned this story as a young kid, but what a story. Incredible story. Now listen, it was a kid. Here's what I grew up hearing. Here was the big takeaway. Here was the moral of the story. As a young guy in VBS and church learning about David and Goliath, here was the thing that we learned. Whatever giant you're facing, whatever obstacles in front of you, whatever fear that you have, you need, like David, to find the courage of the Lord, and you need to stand and face the fear. You need to stand and face the giant. You need to have a moment where you go, you know what? I'm going to walk in the power of God, and I'm going to stand against my giant, and I'm going to slay the giant. And here's the thing. We love that application, do we not? Like, we, we love a good underdog story. Almost every great movie has that underdog dog theme through it. One of the greatest movies ever, ever, is a movie called Hoosiers. 
right? Anybody basketball fans here? Hoosiers, little hickory defeats the big, you know, giant 6A school. And man, there's this great victory because the nobody won. And then you have one of the greatest sports feats ever was Rocky beating Ivan Drago, right? You have this great epic moment where, and even in the movie, they referred to it as the, as the David and Goliath, right? So you have little Sylvester Stallone, Rocky Balboa against big Ivan Drago. And, and before it's over with, the Russians are even cheering David on because everybody loves an underdog story. Or maybe the greatest underdog story ever, Macaulay Culkin versus Joe Pesci in Home Alone, right? But we love this stuff. We love this. We see in this, 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 in this story, we, we hear these lessons of, man, whatever it is, you can find the strength, you can find the courage, and you can face your giants. They ought to make a movie about that. They have. All right, they have. All right, some of you are like, well, I read my Bible, and I don't watch movies. Well, it was a Christian movie. You should have watched it. But, but is that what the movie is all about? Is that what the movie, is that what the book is all about? What the story is all about? This, this whole idea of David beating Goliath. And so now we got to go and face our giant and face our fear and face that, the obstacle in our life and find courage in the Lord and go and fight. Is that really the story? Or is there something more going on in the story? And here's the problem with that application. You don't see that in the story. In fact, you don't see it in the Bible. Nowhere, listen to this, nowhere in the story is David meant to personify a hero to be emulated. Nowhere in the story is David personified as a hero to be emulated. Here is what he is. He is a savior to be celebrated. The goal of the story is not look at David, find the courage of David, and go and be David. That's not the point. The point of the story is that there is a deliverance that God alone provided for his people through someone else. The aim of the story is not to help us find strength to face our giant, but to rather help us understand what we need in our life more than anything as a giant slayer. Amen. You see, the story is pointing to a much greater story. Within the story, listen to this. Just listen to the storyline. See if this doesn't sound familiar. Within the storyline, you have the people of God oppressed, living in fear and defeat. In front of them is an enemy that they cannot overcome, but God sends his anointed to fight for them, and he alone defeats the enemy. What does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. There is a shadow in 1 Samuel 17 of what Christ would come and do for us. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a couple of things to write down. I'm going to show you some comparisons here. Write these down if you're taking notes. I want you to see through the story, these comparisons, these shadows that we see where we get a glimpse of Jesus as the backdrop of the story. The, the first is this. I want you to see this. David was anointed by God and sent to deliver his people. David was anointed by God. So you know in chapter 16, God sends Samuel there and he anoints David in his spirit, which is really what it means to be set apart. The spirit of God resting on you, setting you apart for a divine uh, mission. And so here's what you find. Chapter 16, God anointing David. And then in chapter 17, you see a glimpse of him being sent to deliver his people, eventually becoming the warrior king who would fight battles for them and lead them into victory. And this is the same thing we see with Jesus. Jesus was anointed by God and came to deliver humanity. 
Jesus, when it says, when I say Jesus was anointed by God, the word anointed here, by the way, um, if you ever heard of the word Messiah, we talk about Messiah a lot during the holiday season. We just sung a song about Jesus the Messiah. The Messiah literally means the anointed one, the one that has been set apart by God for a divine purpose of redeeming his people. Jesus was anointed. He, he, he was set apart by God, filled with the Spirit of God for the purpose of coming to deliver humanity. So Jesus comes on the scene to bring about deliverance for his people. Here's number two. David fought on behalf of his people as an advocate. This goes back to representative warfare. So what what happens in the story is the only way for the people of Israel to gain victory is for David to gain victory. If David is defeated, they are defeated. David has to go and he's going to stand as an advocate. When the army could not stand against the enemy, David says, I'll go and I'll do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And so he goes to battle with the enemy. And here's what's at stake. If David is defeated, they will be oppressed by their enemy forever. But if David is victorious, then they will also walk in the victory of David over their enemy. And in the same way, listen to me, church, Jesus, listen, Jesus died on our behalf of humanity as our advocate. That Jesus died on behalf of humanity as our advocate. So when Jesus goes to the cross, it should have been us. We should have died on the cross. We should have received the punishment of our sin. But Jesus loving us came and he died. So here's the difference. This is why Jesus is a greater king. David risked his life for his people. Jesus gave his life for his people. He died on behalf of humanity as our advocate, standing in our place. You see, this is why the gospel is good news. Think about representative warfare. The hope of the people is dependent upon the victory of the warrior. If the warrior loses, it's defeat. But if the warrior wins, it means victory. The word gospel, by the way, is a a word that that literally is a military word. And, And the word means to announce victory. It was a word that was often used that if you saw soldiers fighting and your army prevailed, they would send a messenger back and to declare to you a gospel, a declaration of victory. Hey, your army has prevailed. The enemy is defeated. You're not going to be oppressed by them. You're not going to be in bondage to them. Your army has won victory over the enemy. The gospel is nothing more than a declaration that Jesus died on our behalf. He was our advocate. He has given us victory. Here's number three. Jesus, or David, gained victory through weakness. David gained victory through weakness. Think about the story of David. He was anointed in obscurity. Not even his own family thought he should be anointed as king. His dad was like, hey, just leave David in the field. They won't pick him. He shows up to the battle line. What happens? His brothers reject him. The king doubts him. No one expects him, especially Goliath. Listen, David doesn't win over Goliath. It wasn't about little guy doing a big deal, the big thing. David did not defeat Goliath in spite of his weakness. He defeated Goliath through his weakness. There's a big difference. It wasn't like we look at the story and say, oh my gosh, this little guy beat this big guy. No, 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 no. No. It was through the frailty, through the weakness, through the smallness of David that the enemy stood before him, let his guard down so that he was exposed. And it was in that place of weakness that the delivery of the death blow was given to Goliath. And in the same way, Jesus gained victory through weakness. Jesus gained victory through weakness. 
Think about this. The story of Jesus is the incarnation, Christmas. What we celebrate is what? The fact that Jesus unrobed himself of his majesty, of his glory, and he put on the frailty of human flesh, that he entered into our world so that Jesus would grow weary, he would grow tired, he would be hungry, he would be thirsty. Jesus became weak just like you and me. And just think about the manger itself. Think about the arrival of Christ. God puts on flesh and shows up on the scene, not as a mighty warrior, but an innocent baby who is fully dependent upon the care of his mother. And Jesus was victorious over the enemy. Listen, not in spite of his weakness, but listen, it was actually through the weakness of the incarnation that Jesus gained victory over the enemy. This is why Paul in, in Philippians chapter 2 talks about the fact that, that although he was God, he did not think that equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, take upon the form of a servant, being obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. In other words, what Paul is highlighting is, is that it was through the humiliation of the cross, it was through the, the humiliation of suffering and dying in our place that Jesus actually defeated the enemy. And this is the beauty of the gospel and why Paul would later say that the, the gospel to those who is perishing it's foolishness. But for those who are being redeemed, it's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. Why? Because the enemy looks at Jesus and says, I know how to end this thing. I'm going to put you in the grave. In a moment of weakness, Jesus succumbs to the death only to triumph in resurrection. It was through the weakness of Christ that he gained our victory, which leads me to number four. David achieved complete victory over the enemy. Now let's go back to the cutting off of the head, the overkill moment in the story. What was happening there? Well, in this particular day and time, if you were going to show that you have truly vanquished the enemy and had brought him to complete ruins, you would signify this through the severing of the head of the enemy. It was a way of saying, it's like what you do to a snake, right? You kill the snake and then you chop the snake's head off. Why? Because you're like, I want to make sure he's dead and I want to show that this, this is nothing even to be afraid of anymore. So David runs over there, not, not to finish the job, but rather to say to his people, God has not just given victory, he has given complete victory. The enemy is destroyed forever. If you know the story, I don't have time, but I'm going to give you it anyway. The, the story, a few chapters earlier in, in the story, you see the Ark of the Covenant, it, it is, it is, it is uh, taken by the Philistines, and, and it's taken to the temple of the Philistines where they had all of their gods. So it was just going to be one God among many gods. And the, the main God was Dagon. Dagon was this huge statue that would have been erected standing straight up in the temple. And if you know the story, the Ark of the Covenant's brought in God's representative of his spirit and his presence with his people. It's there in this false pagan temple. And the next morning they come in and they find Dagon bowing down before the Ark of God. I love that. And the people were like, man, something happened. Somebody bumped in the night. They were, they were dusting and knocked him over. Let's set our God up because he can't get up himself because he's dead. So they, they set their God up. The next morning they come in and they don't just find Dagon face down before the ark of God. They find Dagon face down before the ark of God with his head severed and his arm severed. This was a declaration, and this is why the Philistines immediately, when they saw this, they're like, get the ark out of here, send it out of this country. We don't want any part of that. Why? Because that was a sign of utter defeat. When David sliced the head of the enemy off, it was a way for him to say, the enemy has been completely destroyed. And in the same way, church, don't miss this. Jesus achieved complete victory over the greater enemy. 
Now, I want to give you a little nugget of truth here, a little something I learned this week. In the Hebrew text, when it's describing the armor of Saul, the armor of Goliath, rather, it uses language that painted the picture of scales like a snake. The writer is wanting to emphasize that there's a serpent-like nature to Goliath. There's a snake-like nature to Goliath. And David shows up on the scene, and he slays the serpent. He slays the snake, and he chops the snake's head off. What does that sound like? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the fall, there's a promise made that one day the seed of the woman is going to come, and she's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so you see this little glimpse in the story of David and Goliath about the serpent slayer coming. But he's not the serpent slayer. But when Jesus shows up on the scene, he is the true and greater king who slew the greater giant and cut off the head of the greater serpent. And so that when Jesus was crucified and he was laid in the tomb on the third day when he resurrected, he gave a death blow to death and he crushed his head, severed it forever. And here is the great news for you and me. Listen, in Christ, we don't have partial victory over the enemy. We have complete and full victory over the enemy. This is the victory that we have in Christ. He is the greater king, the greater giant slayer. So listen, the point of the story is not be like David. Don't face your giant. The point of the story is just like Israel, we needed a king. We need a king who would fight for us, who would go to battle for us, who would defeat our giant for us. Listen, David, listen, in the story does not represent you and me. Listen, we are the scared, cowardly Israelite army hiding in our tent who is in desperate need of a giant slayer to show up on our behalf. So let's just be frank. We're we're not David, but Jesus is. He's the giant slayer. So, so let me kind of bring this home to where we live. All of us in this room, I want your eyes right here just for a second. All of us in this room, every one of us have fears that we face, little giants that we face in our life. Fears that we have. And some of you men are like, I mean, I'm, I'm not afraid of anything. Let me just tell you what you're afraid of. You're afraid of people finding out the fears that you have. All of us have fears. If you don't have fears, you're, you're ignorant. You, you are. I mean, because that's, that's just silly. We all have fears that we face in life, things, the circumstances of our life that we go through that we don't know how we're going to make it through. We all have giants in life. Maybe it's fear, fear of failure. Maybe it's fear of rejection. Maybe it's fear of loneliness. Maybe it's fear of abandonment. Maybe, maybe it's fear of not measuring up. Maybe it's fear of being insignificant. Maybe it's the fear of dying, fear of getting sick. And many of us in this room, we spend our entire life trying to manage these fears and these anxieties and these stresses and this fatigue and the emptiness and the hopelessness that we find ourselves in. So every day we're trying to stand up to our giant. And every day we get defeated by our giant. These little giants are in our life, and they bring about great fear in us. And, and many of us, are, are, we're, we're weary and we're tired of trying to find the courage of David to find, uh, to find a way to fight and defeat our enemy, only to find ourselves having to run to the shadows again. And so, church, let me be honest with you. This is where I'll just be very vulnerable with you. There, there are all kinds of little giants that call out to me and taunt me in my life. And most of those giants have done this my entire life. I mean, the giant, the, the, the giant of approval, 
constantly yells at me. The, the fear of failure. I like, I mean, God's doing some really cool things here. What if you're not a great leader and you can't lead beyond this and all of a sudden things in church and people get to where they lose confidence in you and, and you no longer can lead the way that you used to lead or lead the way that they want you to lead? And what happens if you fail and the wheels come up? I mean, those are the things that the giants yell at me and taunt me with. Some of you know this. A few years ago, the giant of depression entered into my world. Where, I mean, I just went through a funk where I didn't know. I couldn't, it wasn't like a light switch I could turn on and off. It was just something, it was like it was broken inside of me. And all of those fears and anxieties became very real and evident in my life. And I'll tell you what was exhausting. What was exhausting and what is exhausting in my life is when I'm trying to be David. I can't be David. And it's exhausting and it's tiring and you find yourself, I want courage. And today I got courage. And all of a sudden he says that thing or something happens. And all of a sudden now you find yourself retreating, hiding, going, man, I can't do it. I can't defeat him. I just feel like a failure. And so now all of a sudden you kind of start living in your worst nightmare in the fears becoming reality. But here's the thing that I want you to see. And here's the thing that I've got to see. All right. All those little fears, those, those giants in your life, they're not Goliath. They're not your Goliath. They want you to think that they are, but they're not your Goliath. You say, what do you mean? I'm going to give you a little definition here. What is the giant? What is the ultimate giant of humanity? I want you to hear this. Don't miss this. Because it is from this that all the other little giants come up in our life. The ultimate giant of humanity is separation from God because of sin resulting in death. That's the Goliath we face. That's the greatest giant we'll ever face in this world. This is the ultimate enemy of humanity, that, that separation from God because of sin resulting in death. And here's why. You and I were created to know God, to walk with Him, to be in fellowship with Him, to find purpose and meaning in life, not in the things of this world, but in Him. But when sin entered the world, we were severed from God, separated from God, and the punishment, the consequence of our sin is both physical death but eternal death, where will forever be removed from the very purpose we were created for. And this is the great giant that has had humanity defeated. This is the great giant that we face. Sin has led to separation from him, and the consequences is death. Because of this giant of sin and death that we all live in the reality of, humanity, humanity now is taunted by all the other smaller giants we face. So fear and anxiety and sin dominates and controls us. But here is the great news of the gospel. Jesus, the greater king, has come to deliver a death blow to the greatest giant. In his death, listen to this, Jesus received our sin, removing the barrier that stood between us and God. And in his resurrection, he conquered death, disarming him of his power, so that in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, eternal life is received, and our relationship with God is restored because he has cut off the head of the greatest Goliath. This is the victory that Jesus has given us. You say, so what, is it, what does that have to do, the greater giant have to do? See, listen, all of your little giants in your life, they're the offspring of the greater giant of your life. And by the way, in Christ, the greater giant in your life is dead. 
He's been completely destroyed. And all these little giants in your life want to make you forget that he's dead, and they want to pretend like they are the the big thing in your life. And we've got to understand that there is victory now we can live in because of Christ. Let me get you to write two things down. You say, what is, what's what's the takeaway here? How do I walk in victory if Jesus is the giant slayer? I want you to look at what happens in verse 52. It says, and the men of Israel and Judah rose, this is the army, with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way back from uh, Shirim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came, from, uh, came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. Now, what in the world just happened? This is the same Israelite army who for 40 days, every time Goliath came out and taunted them, what did they do? They ran in fear. They hid in their tents. They went and said, we can't defeat him. There's no way we can overcome him. We need a deliverer. And now all of a sudden you see them in verses 52 to 53 going, man, we're going to go and conquer the enemy. And they're storming the gates and they're running the, the enemy into other cities and they're destroying them and they're plundering. What happened? What changed for them? Let me tell you what changed for them. Goliath was dead. Goliath was dead. He was destroyed. He was completely obliterated. And because of that, there was a newfound confidence in the people of God to say, listen, we don't have to live in fear anymore to the enemy of God because our great king has defeated the great enemy. And because the great enemy has been defeated, we can now walk in victory that he has secured for us. So let me get you to write two things down. Here's number one. Listen, when we recognize the greater giant has been defeated, We no longer have to live in fear of the smaller giants that we face. When you recognize that the greater giant has been defeated, you no longer have to live in fear of the smaller giants that we face. So with the fear of failure comes in, I don't have to live in fear of failure anymore. That little giant can call my name and and attack me and say things about me and talk about the what-ifs, and I'm able now in Christ to be able to say, no, 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 listen, the greater giant has been destroyed. Therefore, failure is not even an option for a believer. In Jesus, I am victorious. When the fear of abandonment or rejection comes, I don't have to be paralyzed and run and hide from that giant. Why? Because the greater enemy has been defeated. Therefore, I can look at that little giant and say, listen, Jesus has embraced me as his own. I don't have to fear abandonment or rejection because I have been embraced by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He knows my name. He calls me his own. And my older brother, Jesus, had defeated the great enemy. Therefore, in him, he will never leave me nor forsake me. So everybody else could abandon me, bail on me, walk out, but he ain't going anywhere. So when the little fear of insignificance comes up, of wanting to measure up, of wanting to be something more than I am, and I can look to the possessions of this world and accomplishments and say, man, I need to gain those things so I can find some sort of satisfaction in my life. I can now say, in Christ, I have all that I need because here is the thing. I am embraced fully by the creator of the universe, not on the basis of what I've accomplished, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for me. Therefore, my significance isn't found in stuff and accomplishments and climbing the ladder. My significance is found in the cross of Christ where he died for me and resurrected to give me life. I don't have to fear even death or sickness. And I don't want to minimize anyone in this room this morning who is walking through a season or maybe you've had a bad diagnosis, but here's the thing that I want you to know. The little G giants, they're going to call out to you and they're going to talk about 
what if it's this and what if it's this and what if they can't find and what if it turns to this and what if, what if, what if. And I know those are real and I don't ever want to minimize the anguish that oftentimes is associated with serious illnesses and sicknesses. But here's what you need to know. Cancer and sickness and all of those things, they're little giants. And they've been stripped of their power because the big giant of sin and death has been obliterated. So in Christ, here is the reality for you. If you live, you're in Christ. If you die, you're in Christ. Either way, you will be victorious. So cancer can destroy our bodies, but it cannot change our eternity. Here's number two. Here's number two. We can now face the battles of this life from victory, not for victory. You see, the children of Israel, when they, chant, when, they, when, they, when they ran after the Philistines, after the defeat of Goliath, they were not trying to gain victory. They were running in victory. They were fighting in victory. So we don't fight for victory. So those things in your life, the fear, the anxiety, the stress, you're not trying to every day go, I'm going to stand and I'm going to defeat my giant and I'm going to walk in victory and I'm going to find some way to gain some victory. No, 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 no. In Christ, you are victorious. The enemy has lost his grip and his hold. So every day as you walk into battle, don't walk into battle trying to find some victory on your own. You go and stand in the victory that Jesus has already secured for you. You, you, you live in Christ and let him fight. The same Jesus that defeated the great giant will defeat the smaller ones as well. You now fight your battles from a position of victory, not trying to gain victory. And this is why Paul writes what he writes. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or all the little giants in the land? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How great is that for us? Church, Goliath is dead. Goliath is dead. The big bad giant has been defeated by our great king. And now all the little giants of the land have to assume their place. And so as you walk and you live and you fight every single day, you do so from a position of victory, not defeat. Jesus, the greater king. Father, I love you and I thank you and I pray now in the name of Christ that you will just take our hearts in the next few moments and just help us. Experience this reality where this would not just simply be a story that we read, but rather we would recognize that we've been written into the story. And so for those who need to be saved this morning, may they call on your name and be saved. May they turn away from trying to be David and surrender to Jesus, the greater David, the greater king. And Father, for those of us who are fighting daily battles of fear and anxiety, I pray that today there'd be the ability to walk in courage, not in our own, but courage from the victory that is ours. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 
I hope that you have enjoyed this message. If you have any questions about anything that you have heard today or would like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, feel free to call our church offices at 903-759-5552 or send us an email at info at nbbctx.org. As for staying up to date with what's going on at New Beginnings, follow us on our social media accounts. Have a great rest of your day.